Hi, everyone. Welcome to yet another edition of At the Devil's Ball. I am Nathaniel. Here with me, as always, is my co-host, Samuel Numenay. Hey, what's up? Hey. And this week we've got uh, we've got a returning guest. We had him on just uh, two weeks ago. He does uh, he does some great work with comics. He's the uh, co-host and the heart of Invasion <laughs> of the podcast. Uh, it is Invasion, right? I do, I keep calling it Attack for no reason. It is, it is Invasion. It is Invasion. But uh, uh, Stephen King is here with us again. He was here with us for Part Four, uh, that Halloween Four. Uh, and this week we are finishing off uh, our Halloween uh, theme with Halloween Six: The Curse of Michael Myers. Um, and so we'll just jump right on into that. Uh, Sam's going to do the vitals, and then we're going to just uh, we're going to jump right into that conversation. Yep. Uh, Halloween Six, or actually, it's just Halloween: The Curse of Michael Myers. This is the first one that doesn't have a, a number after it. I think. Right. Um, Open September 29th, 1995 on a $5 million budget, which is the same budget as the last two films. Uh, got about 15 at the box office, so it was slightly more successful than five, but not by much. <laughs> Shot once again in 1.85 to 1 ratio. The, that's the little narrower widescreen for cost-saving measures. Uh, the director is Joe Chappelle. Uh, the eventual writer is uh, Danielle Ferrans, or Daniel Ferrans, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, we've got the last outing of uh, the late Donald Pleasance as Sam Loomis. We've got what is technically Paul Rudd's first shot film, but it's the second released film after Clueless. So I think he's still listed as an introducing in this. He is, as Paul uh, yeah. Stephen Rudd. Yes, yeah, Paul Stephen Rudd. Yeah. Uh, got, uh, he played Tommy Doyle at his first re uh, reappearance since the first film, unless you count the previously on from Halloween 2, where they show up for a second. Mm -hmm. <laughs> first real character coming back from one that isn't, you know, Loomis or, or Lori. Uh, we've got Marianne Hagen as Kara Strode. Uh, Michael, oh. I'm sorry, Mitchell Ryan as Dr. Wynn of uh, Smith's Grove Sanitarium. We've got a Kim Darby as uh, Deborah Strode, Bradford English as John Strode, uh, Keith Bogart as Tim Strode, uh, Mariah O'Brien as Beth, and rounding it out is uh, Leo Geeter as uh, Barry Sims. Uh, I, I guess I'll, I'll mention JC Brandy because it's not her fault she was recast as, as, as Jamie. Um, shouldn't right. hold that against the actress. Uh, I was debating whether to even mention it, but I'm like, eh, it's not fair to her. She she showed yeah. up and she did the job. Mm -hmm. And uh, George P. Wilbur returns as the shape. And so uh, I guess uh, rolling into it, uh, Steve, you uh, valiantly jumped on this grenade as soon as it was brought up. Um, <laughs> I, we weren't even planning on having a guest for a second, because we're like, nobody's going to want to do this, but you... <laughs> You were like a young Steve Rogers. You just jumped on it. Uh, can, you tell, can you tell us uh, why you were amped to do this one? So I, I don't know that I, I, I'm trying to approach this from the point of view of like uh, talking about the actual movies, both the theatrical and the producer's cut individually. But the backstory of the making of the movie is almost far more interesting, I think, than either cut. Um, but uh, 
you'd mentioned a few weeks ago that uh, you uh, were reading uh, Taking Shape, mm-hmm. the book on the series. And uh, it was a book that I bought, but it's just on a stack of books that I haven't read yet. I did revisit, uh, or I did visit, I should say, the making of six in the book uh, for this episode. And uh, in looking at it, I think that, you know, just to, to boil it down, because I do sometimes tend to go on, the the producer's cut or the original, you know, treatment that Farron's had, like he had a huge task ahead of him. And perhaps I'm more forgiving of the producer's cut simply because I'm like, he had so much that he had to do and so much work that he'd put into this to try and bring it back to something that was uh, closer in tone to the original, even though it still strays far away. Um, I, I just think it's, it's one that over the years I've, I've begun to like more, I guess, probably since that box set was released by Screen Factory like 10 years ago, including the producer's cut, because six used to be close to the bottom of the barrel for me. It probably is still in somewhere closer in the bottom half, but I, I find the producer's cut to be at least a better movie. Doesn't mean that either version's great, but I, I do think that uh, this is one of those rare create cases where you get a producer's cut and you're like, okay, I can actually see that this was at least a better version of the story they were trying to tell. And I think that whole part of it is fascinating to me. Is probably why I was so interested to talk about it. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, Nathaniel, how, what are your feelings on the film? What's, I, what's, what's, uh, I actually kind of like it. I actually kind of like it. I've, uh, I li- I've liked it since it came out. Um, now, part of that is probably a little bit of nostalgia uh, in the sense that this is one of the first horror films I think I owned. Um, I think when this came out, it came out on tape, VHS, and uh, I had just started collecting VHS tapes at that time. And so Halloween 6 was one I like when it came out, I picked it up. And I was right. like, okay. And I must have watched it like a million times. I think I still have the tape. I think it's in storage. And the box is all like crinkly and stuff because I watched it like over and over again. Uh, and now, of course, I was like 14. Um, but um, even watching it now, I'm like, I, I don't think it's that bad a film. Uh, I, I think that it, uh, and again, uh, you know, I was thinking about this again. I put threw it on again last night when I got from work and I, I kind of have to, didn't really watch it, but it was on again just to be like, I got to talk about this tomorrow. Um, And uh, I was just kind of noticing that I was like, this movie, what was I, where was I going with this? Um, So I lost my train of thought, but to basically, yes, uh, I I think it's, it's not that bad. Um, But no, that's where I was going with it. Uh, The, the, uh, the, again, that I've kind of said this all along uh, since we started Halloween, that the Halloween series is not that, sacred to me it's not that special to me um i very much like i I like them but i usually only watch them in october and then i forget about the rest of the year um and so it it, maybe it's because i'm uh, i'm a relatively non uh what's the word i'm trying to think of uh yeah yeah i mean i think that i'm like okay uh it's it's another michael myers movie he kills a bunch of people. Um, I think that there is an effort. I remember back again when this was released, there was a, uh, I've referenced it a couple of times. I used to have the Mick Marsh, uh, Mick Barton, Marsha Porter video movie guide. It was like this, like the size of a fucking Bible. Yeah. Uh, you, okay. you could like, you could, you could kill a man with it. Um, <laughs> and I used to carry it around and I would mark off all the movies I'd seen and I would read the reviews, uh, which, uh, 
back in these days, kids, um, if you're under 30, uh, the, 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 you, you, they used, really used to release these books. They were, they were big, thick books that would have a, a, usually a one to five star rating. Uh, it was written by film critics. And the idea was that you were supposed to be able to read them before you went to the video store. Yeah, and a short, like a short what to rent. Yeah, like yeah. a short one paragraph synopsis and maybe another paragraph on you know the review of the film. It was very yeah. And I remember yeah. that in this particular book, they they gave Halloween Six a pretty good review, and they had said that they felt like unlike Five um, and Two, which I think they gave relatively low reviews to, they had said that Halloween Six had the feeling of someone trying to make a quality horror film. Um, that somebody was trying to make a movie that was more accentuated with atmosphere, more in line with the original film. Um, and I actually, thinking back on that and watching the film, I think that I see that, like what, what Steven said, but that there was clearly a lot of effort here, I think. Um, but I mean, I think the movie is, is a lot of fun. I mean, and obviously some of that's post-ironic, you know, it's, oh, it's, it's Paul Rudd, you know, uh, still looking oddly the same, uh 30 years ago um you know you have uh you you have just a little just enough of the crazy dr loomis uh with one of my favorite scenes is he he, like kind of very he just breaks into this family's home (laughs) uh and sits sits the mom down and 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 again he's trying to tell her basically the 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 crux of the conversation is get your family and get out of the house but he can't just say that he has to say like his pure rage you know, inside him. Yeah, you must run away. Uh, and I'm like, it, Doc, you could have just said, like, hey, guys, uh, there's a, there's a ma- uh, maniac scene about killing everybody. You could just, right. I think you'd probably be better off going to a hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instead, he's like, <laughs> I shot him six times. Um, so I don't, think, he, I don't think he's as over the top in this one. I mean, I don't know if that's just, just in that scene. Feeling. I think right, it's, that's it's just alone. that scene. Yeah. Just that one scene, he, right. he goes back to the old Dr. Loomis. In the rest of the movie, he's super chilled out. Right. Um, which, uh, in comparison to Five, which we did last week, where he's so over the top, like, right. well, as we called it, he went full AF yeah. in that movie. And this curious. movie, like, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, I just want to jump in here real quick. Do you yeah. think that that was an acting choice, or do you think it was due to his age at this point? Because I know it was in Failing Health. Uh, my I'm- assumption... Yeah, early on, I think that he was, I think at the beginning of the film, I think it's probably he's just an old man. Yeah. And I think, like, when those are, like, like um, it's a, actually probably the one really delightful Dr. Loomis moment. So for some reason, he's listening to right, right-wing talk radio, beginning of the movie. They're talking about Michael Myers. And they're like, I heard the old quack was dead. And he turns around, and he's like, dead? No, just very much retired. And it's, yeah, it's that's a great intro for him, yeah. I think. Yeah, and it's a very nice moment where he's just like he's just he's just chilled out, you know. And then, uh, but I think I think that again, I think if you could find, like, even the producer's cut isn't quite. I don't think is the quite the vision anybody had, but I bet if you found that the perfect sweet spot of what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. It was probably supposed to be the idea that Loomis has been retired. He's chilled out. Right. The quest, he's brought back into the quest, and that ramps him back up. That would right. that would be my assumption. Um, and, then, uh, and then, you know, like, Paul Rudd would be, like, the, the Mutt Williams character, like, the one that's supposed to have, you know, been passed on to after this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. I think um, it's obviously written where he's a little more chilled out, especially at the beginning. 
Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I feel like we, we know he had health problems during the shoot and he died before reshoots could happen. So they had to right. make a lot of changes to the film based on that. I think they probably did cut. I didn't, you know, find the original script or the original seventh or eighth script that they, they went into filming with this. But I feel like they probably had to cut more and more out as, you know, as it went along because his failing health. Yeah. Um, as far as my feelings on the film, um, this was the first one I got to see in the theater. So it, it's always had a sweet spot for me there. Mm. Um, and this also came, I was, this was 90, the fall of 95. So I would have been just starting my senior year mm. in high school. Um, and I, at that point, I was obsessed with uh, deep lore and, you know, like having connections in films and like, you know, I, I don't know if it came from watching too much X-Files or if it came from, you know, reading all those bad 90s Star Wars novels or what. But the fact that they tried to flesh out this world so much and <coughs> nothing new with it really, really struck me as a lot of fun. And I really dug it. Um, but I will say the longer, the more time that has gone past between when you know I first saw the film and now I, I like the film less. Um this time watching it, I was actually like kind of bummed out because I never remember it being, I remember it, I remember all the weird stuff and everything like that, all the, you know, choices that they made that are kind of baffling now. But also like, I just kind of got bummed out because I feel like the, the movie was really mean and uh Yeah, I saw that you dark. mentioned that. Yeah, I saw uh, that you mentioned and, on social media and I wanted to ask for clarification on that first because right. you said you called it ugly and mean-spirited on social media. Yeah. And I, I, I don't see where you're coming from, uh, uh, to be honest with you. I, I, I don't. I think also any... said it was joyless. Uh, it was that joyless that I might agree. Yeah. Uh, and and you also said it was stupid. I, I, it's definitely stupid. Right. Um, but when you said like ugly and mean spirited, um, and you compared it to Rob Zombie's films, you said mm -hmm. like you know Rob. I think your post was actually uh, Halloween. Halloween Six says I'm going to make the ugliest, most mean spirited, stupid movie I possibly can. And then Rob Zombie said, "Here, hold my dreads." Right. Um, and um, and I might I get that with Rob Zombie. Like I, I Rob Zombie, of course, relatively prides himself on making ugly, mean spirited kind of movies. You know, um, by his own admission, he wants people to feel dirty and take want to take a shower after his films, and that works for some people, doesn't for others. And I respect that decision. Um, but so you said that I'm like I don't think Halloween Six is any uglier, more mean spirited than any other film that had come before it. So I wanted to ask you, like, where, what, what about this movie reads as ugly or mean spirited? Well, I mean, uh, was it Kara Strode? Is that the, the lead yes. actress's name? Um, she's our, she's supposed to be our, you know, our Laurie character for the film, for lack of a better term. Um, she's not played the same way as Laurie, and that's fine. Um, you know, it's actually kind of neat that they put a heroine in it who's in her mid twenties and is, you know, a single mom trying to survive yes. the real world and not also trying to survive Michael Myers. But uh, there's just so much. I guess the way to start way to start with that would be um, her home life is so is so terrible. It's very. It almost feels like Rob Zombie saw that and like, yes, that's Michael Myers' home life. I want to put it Halloween one um, with the. Uh, the dad's abusive and the mom, yes. you know, uh, part of that because she's meek and she's also, you know, kowtowed to the decades of abuse she's probably been under. Mm -hmm. um, there's not any real happiness to, to really any of the characters. There's not, there's not a feeling of 
you know, this is a bucolic suburb that, you know, evil comes into and changes things. This suburb is already, already fucked at the beginning. Hmm. And these characters are already fucked at the beginning. Um, and I don't know, just it struck me as wrong to not have, you know, have any kind of respite for Kara at the beginning of the film where she showed that she's, you know, happy or well-adjusted or that her life isn't already a nightmare that, you know, Michael Myers isn't going to make that much worse. Um, I don't know. just feel like it was a mistake to me to just not have, I don't want it to be the same exact character as Laurie Strode, but to have a more normal home life instead of, you know, a broken home to a more going from a broken home to a more broken home. Uh, it just feels mean to me. Yeah, yeah. I, I have more. I have thoughts on. I, I have thoughts on the dad. But uh, Steve, what do you what do you think? You find this movie ugly and mean spirited? I don't know that I find it ugly and mean spirited. I will say I, it's. I believe it's the producer's cut that gives us a little glimpse at Kara being a mom. Where uh, Tommy is Tommy the son? Danny. 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 Yeah, I have the IMDb up because I'm right. like I don't want to screw up names because I care for know. him, Daddy. Yeah, care <laughs> for him. <laughs> But, uh, you know, she, there's a little extra bit at the beginning of the film where she comes in and kind of spooks away the boogeyman from his room. And you get a little mm-hmm. bit of character from her there. You can see that she's a mom who cares about her kid. She's in a place that's not exactly great. She's got a mom who cares about her, but a dad who just thinks that she's sponging off of them and not living up to her potential or whatever right. his deal is. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought that that was... Uh, I don't want to say relatable because that's not like where I came from or something like that. But I felt like that was at least a realistic portrayal of a family. That's kind of particularly the times that we're in now where, you know, kids have to move back in home with their parents and, you know, everybody's struggling financially. Like that seemed real to me even 30 years ago, I guess, Uh, which saying that is mind boggling. I'm like 30 years ago. Oh my God, it is (laughs) that, that long ago. Uh, However, uh, you guys brought up the, you know, seeing it in a theater and your experiences with the film. It's, I think for me, what has also stuck out in the back of my brain is, is that this movie seemed to like vanish from the theaters. Like this and Mallrats, for whatever reason, I have specific memories of like, oh, I want to see that in the theater. And then like a week later, not being able to find it anywhere. Um, so I didn't get to see this, I think, until like the following summer, uh, which would have been like 96 on DHS. Um and I well, think uh, Mallrats okay. was uh, Mallrats was Gramercy Pictures, which was also much like uh, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000, the movie, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, the, the uh, I think it was Kevin Murphy of Mystery Science Theater said that Gramercy couldn't uh, couldn't market a film to save their lives. Yeah, um, right. But yeah, Mallrats, I, th- this movie was probably just because Miramax had no faith in it so they probably yeah. just pulled it after opening weekend they were like oh we made our money let's, let's get the hell out of here well i, but anyway, I played I, here I, for a couple of weeks and it and went I, uh and it went to the uh the discount theater near me um but i i think it was like by halloween it was at the discount theater which is you know kind of strange for a halloween movie because yeah um, but anyway steve but yeah. you were saying we interrupted Sorry, no, that's that's okay. So I think, you know, part of my first watch of this film, <coughs> and I think this happens with a lot of movies, is that your first, first viewing of it, for whatever reason, it imprints on you. So, like, whenever I think of this movie, I initially go back to, like, being in my room uh, watching that movie. Um, I remember it being hot and just being like, all right, let's see how you fix what happens in five. And uh, I think I had a, a, 
a not very high opinion going into it. And I remember just some of the choices at the time baffling me. But I look back on that period now, too, and I see that, you know, this wasn't just happening. This isn't Halloween specific. You know, we'd had um, them try to reinvent the Friday the 13th franchise with uh, Jason Goes to Hell. Uh, at this point, we'd had New Nightmare, uh, which was also a reinvention of Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah. Um, and while I still have not seen this film, um, and it's mentioned in <clears throat> Taking Shape, the Hellraiser series is also going through a bit of a growing pain or a struggle with how they're proceeding. Um, and that film apparently also went through a very similar process to this, where there were a lot of cooks in the kitchen, a lot of people uh, trying to shape what the movie becomes. And I, I realize that I've kind of diverged from the original question, but I don't see it as mean spirited and ugly. I do see it much more as a film made by committee and not one voice coming out, I think, controlling the, the film overall. I, I definitely agree with you on that. I think that you can definitely see, uh, see a, you can see a film, especially in the theatrical version, uh, which I actually, I, I didn't end up getting the producer's cut. I, I've, I had seen it in the past, um, but uh, in this, but the theatrical version, you can clearly see that this is, as Sam said, it's joyless. There is, and as you said, there's no direct voice controlling the ship, you know, there's the, to, to mix my metaphors. Um, it's pretty clear that this movie was put together by committee. It is pretty clear that it's just trying to do it's, it's a soulless marketing ploy. I think, you know, the movie just wanted to, 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 to reach audiences, uh, make money and go away. And, uh, and it, I don't know if, and that doesn't make for good filmmaking. It never does. No. Um, good filmmaking is when you have uh, somebody with a clear vision trying to present it and whether or not they try, they, they succeed or fail. Uh, it's, it's at least this attempt to tell a story. This movie really, I think that it is again, to, to bring it back to a, to more textual um, analysis is, is you got, you, as you said, you have somebody that's, they're taking five, which Sam and I didn't even mention the man in black in, in part five. Where he comes he in didn't. And, it, he did, didn't belong there. There's no, no, he wasn't a character. He had, they added it a bit, yeah. you know, last minute and they didn't really have anything for him to do other than break, you know, Michael out. Michael who, out. We could, you know, safely say that he probably didn't need the help. He probably, you know, if, if you would have written it that way, people would buy that. He just got out on his own. I mean, he's yeah. escaped from how many places already and killed how many police forces, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, but I mean, yeah, in, in part five, the guy shows up, he, He's got the same tattoo as Michael Myers, which was a uh, something they added in five. Michael had right. the tattoo, um, and uh, so you have that. They're coming off of that, and they're like, "How do we play that off?" Um, yeah. yeah, they definitely painted themselves into a really tight corner with starting out this film. Yeah, uh, and this was, you know, one film before they realized that they, hey, we could just ignore some of these films if we want, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, like as you said, with like you know, at the same time, these other, and that's something I actually wanted to talk about as well, because I, I had kind of mentioned last week when we were talking about five, uh, I was trying to get at something, and I don't think I was actually successful at getting there, uh, about character development, and whether or not these mega franchises require character development of their monsters, but it was sort of what I was actually getting at, was less about character development and more about the development or reinvention of characters as time goes on. Uh, and as Steve mentioned, you know, that the, 
you know, you had Jason Goes to Hell. And even before that, you had, you know, you jumped from, uh, you know, you jumped from, you know, Friday the 13th, 6, as Michael, as Jason come back is undead. Uh, you know, then he fights Carrie in part seven. He goes to Manhattan. He goes to outer space. He's, all these things are happening with Jason Voorhees that are, are meant to sort of keep this franchise running. That doesn't happen with Michael Myers, at least until here. Part six is, I feel like, is their first attempt to be like, how do we make this weirder? How do we make this different than what happened before? Um, apparently, the answer is is uh, uh, guitar riffs and <laughs> um, uh, and uh, and uh, uh, Michael trying to kill a baby. Um, but uh, you know, which is more or less the plot of this film, I guess. It's it's Michael is Michael wants to kill the baby. James, yeah, I would say I would baby. say guitar riffs are definitely a part of the plot of this film. The way yeah. they're used. Yeah. Um, it's it, I love it every single time. It's it's one of those things. Again, it's a, there's a there's a yeah. post ironic love of this film where I'm like whatever right. that 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 guitar riff. Of, yeah, 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 and it goes into the Michael Myers theme, John Carpenter's theme, right. but it's done by electric guitar. Um, I, I like do the sign of the sign of the beast right there, man. You know, I'm like, you know, I'm at a Slayer concert all of a sudden. I don't even know. I don't I don't know heavy metal. Is Slayer cool? Do people like Slayer? Um, and, I don't I don't know heavy. Yes, but you know Metallica. I guess. There you go. Yeah, Lars Ulrich. You know, I'm like you know double basing. You know, but, uh, <laughs> um, uh, fuck fuck Lars. But yeah, I mean it um, was it was but, it was yeah, a dying uh, franchise in, in a yes. dying genre at this point. And, exactly. I, yeah. Yeah. And it, like I said, they, they were boxed into such a corner by just, you know, the the things they added, you know, just to add in the last couple entries. I mean, where are you supposed to go with that other than ignore it? Yeah. Um, so I get I get where they were going for it. Um, just uh, going back to explain my joy listing, just a, just one more little bit. Um, sure. The first act of, you know, like the first Halloween, which is obviously the template for all that followed for good and for ill. Um, especially when you're talking about everybody has to bring up <laughs> Loomis and Laurie all the time. Um, there's a lot of comedy. There's a lot of lightness to it. There's, you know, the character building is all them, you know, pretty much all them having a good time while evil starts coming in around the corners, uh, you know, in, the, in their peripheral vision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's all the stuff with, you know, totally. And, you know, just uh, yeah, Annie being Annie and, you know, um, Laurie having a, a fun little scene with, you know, Tommy Doyle's first appearance where he's asking her, you know, can we do this? Can we do that? Can we do this? It's, it's, that's a way to fill in the characters and make them feel realistic without putting them into um, a, a place that's already toxic and damaged, which means you have less, less uh, contrast between the, well, the bad stuff of the movie that's going to happen later in, the, good, in, the, in the, the beginning of the movie. I'd argue the film, if, if there's actually one point this film actually does attempt to make, um, it's that the environment has become toxic as a result mm-hmm. of four, four films of people getting right. murdered. Because um, there's the entire plot point of, uh, of um, main character's brother's uh, girlfriend is trying to put together, trying to get this Barry Sims, uh, Howard Stern personality to come to Haddonfield uh, with the idea of trying to be like, Hollow- we're taking Halloween back. Um, you know, they have that whole plot point of like, we want to make Haddonfield a, a fun place again because it's not fun anymore. Uh, where everybody, uh, everybody remembers it as birthplace of Michael Myers, which I think is a clever idea. Um, it's something that doesn't come up as much in a lot of other horror franchises that are localized in an area. 
Uh, you know, of course, by this time we'd gotten Freddy's dead, which, you know, way back our first episode, where they talk about, you know, the, the town had been completely destroyed. But, um, you know, and, and then everybody knows to stay away from Crystal Lake in Friday the 13th, but um, Haddonfield, it doesn't get talked about as much throughout the sequels. That, right. First of all, one and two happened the same night. Four, we do have, you know, uh, Sheriff Meeker being like, people have forgotten about what happened, but we don't. The cops don't, right. work, don't forget. Um, and then five is just whatever. Um, but I mean, we, we haven't really seen how the community deals with Michael Myers. And clearly the answer is, and there's a little, there's some little like clever things in this movie, like, like the house, mm-hmm. uh, the dad is he's selling the house and he clearly is lying. No, he bought, he bought the house. Did he buy it? I thought he was selling. He bought, he bought the house from his brother, the guy who owns Strode Realty because they couldn't unload the house. So they're just like moving right. in and fixing oh, okay. it at this point. But there's obviously everything wrong with this house. Right. It's little clever things like that that I think actually kind of work. Like, yeah, I would like, like to have... see more of that, uh, more of the town. And I think, if I'm not recalling incorrectly, I think the fact that you know how Haddonfield had this reaction to where they you know um, banned Halloween and you know yeah. it's kind of a no go holiday uh, came from John Carpenter and Deborah Hill's uh, pitch for Halloween Four. Um, so it kind of made its way because again. The series likes to reuse ideas that that are good that they didn't use, which I, I appreciate. Sure, but it, it could have been expanded a little little more and a little better in, in this to yeah. really feel like. It's interesting. This one, I think, what what I think attracts me to six more than some of the others. Also, is I actually think there's a pretty strong second act, mm-hmm. um, which is almost opposite to the rest of the Halloween series, which has a stronger open first act and third act. Um, second act is actually where all the really smart stuff actually happens. And then it gets forgotten for what is clearly a hastily reshot uh, ending. Yeah. But I mean, like I said, you have like the idea of like you introduce uh, the concept of Barry Sims. He's coming to town. They're going to try and take back Halloween. Um, and then the, uh, the house becomes a microcosm for what I think the community is supposed to be. And I, I can't imagine this is this is an accident. I think that they, they have these candles all around the house because the power goes out. Uh, the wa- damn washing machine won't work. They have to. They have to literally pull the switch to turn the breakers on and off. Um, and, and, and the idea that that's also reflecting the cracks within the family, you know, that, that uh, everything has gone wrong. And I think that's supposed to be a metaphor. I think that the, w- w- at some point the filmmaker, the director managed to be like, here's some actual filmmaking happening um, where I think that there's, there's meant to be this sort of microcosm for the town and that Michael is this sort of disease that keeps damaging the community. So you, you say that, you, you know, think that, 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 that the movie's too joyless. I think that's might be part of the point. It, it, I think they, it was at some point part of the yeah. point, but it, it definitely got lost in the later drafts and, you know, yeah. the, the rush to cut this down to a quick length. I think this is one of the rarer um, slasher films that could have benefited from another 10 minutes in, in the middle to mm. to flesh out these ideas that like you said that they barely touched on where the town is you know town itself is literally dying from michael myers uh, <coughs> steve how do you feel about that what, what's your thoughts on the on the town of Haddonfield? i'm trying to separate out from what i just read in taking shape about the directions they were taking with the cult and how yeah. it's supposed to be one bloodline that is basically sacrificing itself for the rest of the town and how that sort of mixes into the film. And I don't think you actually get that 
Um, I mean, I get you get it a little bit more in the producer's cut than you do the um, the theatrical, but I <clears throat> I don't think that that point ever really gels. Um, I do like the idea of Halloween being suppressed and the younger generation trying to bring it back. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that uh, particularly that whole sequence where it's raining red, it's raining red, it's raining red, mommy. That's raining a great red. little seed. I love that. Yeah, I yeah. think that stuff's all interesting. But it's also a point of, and again, they mentioned this in the book that um, uh, Danny, keep wanting to call him Tommy, Danny and his mom are supposed, Kara are supposed to be at that uh, festival. Um, And that's why Michael's there. And he just kind of shows up for no reason in this movie. And I don't think about it too hard, but as I was reading, I was like, yeah, why was Michael there? (laughs) None of the main characters are there. Because somebody needed to kill Howard Stern. (laughs) (laughs) Someone definitely, he's the, he's the, 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 the closest thing to, uh, uh, comedy we have in the film and even that's kind of mean-spirited right yeah you know oh i was just gonna make a joke about the beavis and butthead impression uh that which is which is always just so cringeworthy yeah uh, (laughs) because it just brings up you know awkward adolescence and you know the fact that it it was like you know doing the obehave crap you know a few years later everybody did it it was always bad (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, before Ben, before before Beavis and Butthead, it was Ace Ventura, right? Know, the, yeah. the kids in school, you know, that that lack of personality would be like, "All righty, that." It's like, <laughs> okay, uh, don't ever do now, that. Now, in, in our um, in our defense, not all of us lacked personality. It's just we were still trying to find our voice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's it's a very fine excuse. Yes, um, but yeah, I mean, if we're in the jokes category, I mean, I but the, I love. Mom is clearly studying psychology because her son screwed up, right. you know, in this movie. But he's like drawing pictures of like his of his family being murdered, and she's just kind of like, eh. Like, right. um, it's like, it, like he he she comes into the kids' room at the very beginning of the film, and this is in the theatrical version. I can't remember what happens. The producer's cut, but she comes into the room and he's screaming. He's like, "Mommy, mommy!" She comes in. He's like, "The man is here." Yeah, he was having one of those uh, pill for me dreams yeah and, and it, yeah, yeah and, but in the movie she's like and he says like there's a man in my room and she's like there's nobody here and he's like he tells me to do bad things and i'm like any i mean like uh call the doctor like right now um but she's like oh dan <laughs> you, you, you nut and i'm like um <laughs> he literally just said there's a shadowy individual in the room that's telling him to kill people like you know he's saying bad yeah. things um you need to he needs to see a shrink like yeah, if right this was now. like if this was like the late seventies, early eighties, I could see that they're like, well, he's he's not having yeah. a seizure. He doesn't need to see a doctor. Right. This is the mid nineties. So it's like they're like, yeah, people would have taken him to the to the doctor at yeah. this point. You know? Yeah, my you know, like uh, a couple of years later, my brother would end up having uh, being diagnosed with schizophrenia, and it was sort of it was again, it was like I'm hearing voices. And they're telling me to do bad stuff. It was right. okay. We see you do see a doctor. Uh, you don't just be like, oh, you nut. Um, yeah. Oh, what a pretty picture, Danny. Oh, is that mommy's entrails hanging out? That's oh, our uh, silly Danny. Uh, I'm going to put it up on the fridge. Uh, and then, you know, again, like, I think, like, the, the brother is even, like, in the picture dead. And he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. I think it's cool. You know, and I'm like, is it cool? He just he just drew a picture of you dead, bro. Right. But, you know, it's a, it's okay, I guess. Um, 
Also, let's I mean, talk about the brother. I, I, there's a moment where I, I kind of like him, which is when dad has his little, his uh, father's no, father knows best, uh, Archie Bunker, uh, you know, uh, I'm been a backhand my, my daughter across the face. Um, like and, if they would have just kept, if they would have just kept it where he, he, he has a lot of, you know, anger towards her for coming back and for having a child out of wedlock. And he just kind of, you know, mean mugs her and, you know, says shitty things. I could see that because they even have that part where he, you know, calls the kid a bastard and you could tell that he regrets saying it as soon as it comes out of his mouth. Um, at least that's the way the actor plays it. I think um, so. Yeah. But if they had, if they had just taken the backhand out of that, I wouldn't have had much of a problem with it. It's uh, that's just like too far i think i think well i mean i think i kind of agree with you but only because like the point i was getting out was the brother mm. um for like half a second shows real legitimate concern when he slaps right. he says hey get away from her but like, he does it from like behind his mom um you know and so we and i'm like this character i feel like there's something going on with this character that we're not seeing um you know and later on he has a little bit of that vulnerability when his girlfriend's like by the way your house is the Myers house and he's he has no idea right. and he's like uh, and uh, at the Barry Sim show and he's like and, and the kids like freaked out and then he has that moment where they're like she's telling him the ghost story and he's like can you can you stop I'm actually legitimately frightened um it's a nice moment but I mean we never really understand this character and I would have liked him more if he'd actually stuck up more in that scene for his for his daughter I actually I like the abuse scene which is a weird thing to say um I think it's a pretty solid scene um, because much like Barry Sims at the beginning, uh, there's a lot. There, it's one of the things I admired when I when I watched the film again was I was like, there's actually a lot of exposition in this film that doesn't sound like exposition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it 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 slides under the radar, uh, and it's very adeptly done. Uh, there's a, a writer, uh, C. Robert Cargill, uh, is on Twitter, and he did a he does writing advice a lot. Excuse me, and he basically says I one of the things he said was once one of his tweets was like um if you were struggling with exposition put it in a joke put it in a scare put it in something else and people won't even notice it's there um and i feel like this movie does that a lot and the dad scene with him yelling at his daughter is actually delivering a lot of exposition but you're so uh wrapped up at how much of a garbage bag of a human being he is that you don't notice that he's delivering all the backstory all of it he's telling every single bit of it he's like oh yeah she we, we don't hear from her for 20 years. She shows up with her bastard kid and, you know, oh, keeps slipping her money, Deborah. Yeah, like, you know, and he's like yelling and screaming and like, and he basically is telling us like, mom was in a bad spot clearly a couple of years ago. She had a kid, probably doesn't know who the kid's father is. She's showing up, she's trying to get her life back together. He's not making that easy. I mean, we're getting a whole bunch of backstory there. Um, so I, I think that's, that's pretty clever. Um, do I, I think I probably do agree with you. Did he have to hit her? Probably not. Um, and it's not and the first time it's happened, judging by everybody's, you know, not everybody's, res- everybody's response to it is pretty much like we're just used to this. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, but like I said, I think again, you're, and I think you're probably right. I think the actor probably was doing different things at different times based on how everybody in this movie is doing different things at different times behind the scenes. Cause I think you're right. He, think he, he hesitates for half a second when he calls the kid a bastard. Right. And he does seem and he, like he, he, suck, he tries to say? suck it. He tries to suck it back in as he says yeah. it too. Um, yeah. Which I, you know, I noticed this run through that, you know, it wasn't like this bastard. He's like the. Yeah. 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 I probably shouldn't have said that. Yeah. Right. 
Uh, and then like, but yeah, and like I said, then you have all that stuff about like the house falling apart. Uh, the mom actually wants to give him another chance. She calls him up and says, we're going to leave and I want you to come with us. And he, he, we see he's drinking in the middle of the day uh, at, his at, job. His, at his job. Um, and I think that we're supposed to be seeing, uh, again, much like the house itself, I think we're supposed to be seeing a man who's under pressure and, uh, and ha- is, is lashing out. But again, like you said, the, a lot of response to it is that we've been seeing this a while, so you can't blame it on circumstance. Right. But I think it's supposed to be circumstantial that he's like, uh, you know, we can't like, like uh, we find out, of course, as you said, he bought the house. So he needed the house. Um, it's fallen apart. He's got a money trap on his hand. Um, you know, I think that we're supposed to be seeing again, like he's indicative of the sickness of Hadfield. And, but you're right that they, they go too far in showing that instead of maybe a man who's cracking under pressure, he's just an abusive prick. Right. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, much like everything else, I feel like there's an idea in there that's not coming out. Yeah. Steve, how do you feel about the, uh, the family in the town if, if they're parallel or i can see that i i had this thought while you guys were talking um because it was brought up that you know the family doesn't know what the house is and for a brief second i was like well everybody seems to know it's the myers house but them how do they not know and then i thought about it i did literally no research in the house i live in now like there could have been a ghastly murder here that everyone knows about that i don't know um so maybe there there is something to that i do think uh you know the slap that you mentioned i think it's also supposed to push him into uh, villain territory so that like when he gets his just desserts in the uh, basement later on you're right. you're supposed to cheer and be like yeah screw that guy um right. i'm not saying that that's good or bad i'm just saying that i think that's why it's there yeah um and i, I think that his death also is an example of the different tones of the two cuts of the film as well mm-hmm. you know theatrical um he's just kind of stabbed up against the electrical box and uh you know the i'm sorry the theatrical his head explodes right. <laughs> sorry and then the producer's that's, cut that's kind just... of a that's kind of almost a a tradition at this point is that they go back and add more gore to the to the film somewhere between shooting and, and release uh, they but did it, a lot with four and five as well yeah it, it did make me also think about uh, just characterization you guys have talked a little bit about either trying to humanize Michael or give you know this whole movie is trying to give reason to why Michael's Michael but um, you know I, in reviewing the movie I, I realized that like he's not really playing pranks at all in this like no. there's always at least something in each of the films where you know he's being a little cheeky if you will um, but yeah. like there's none of that in this and it's you know literally uh, Jamie's character is thrown on some sort of farm machinery uh, that I I wouldn't know how to even turn on, but like right. she's sawed not in half, but you know her internal basically. organs are yeah. just basically minced up. Um, and I don't right. know how this is answering the question, so I apologize that I kind of went no. off on a tangent because I was no. thinking about it as you guys were talking about it. But um, I, I do wish that michael had had a little bit more characterization in this as opposed to like you, they're making you know efforts to tie everything together i would have right. liked to see michael not have fun if you will but be a little bit more 
clever I guess, about yeah some, yeah his kills that's that's part of the reason i the large part of the reason i feel like the, the film is joyless because even in michael's character it's not you know I, we mentioned in you know one of the earlier episodes you know how he's how he's a jokester he's he's playing pranks where people die and mm-hmm. you can tell he's having fun with it even you know if he's you know single-minded and on target at all times he's still having fun and in this yeah he's just he's he's just brutal with his killings and it doesn't seem like even he's having fun with it he's just point a to point b if you're in the way you're, you're dead yeah well i mean yeah and let's well let's talk about I mean, my favorite fun moment of this movie we haven't really talked talked much about paul Rudd mm-hmm. and um uh in his bafflingly creepy performance mm-hmm. um and, can uh, anyone and, can it, can anyone figure out what voice he's trying to do? He's he's doing a voice, and I could never I could never quite figure out what he's going for. Is he trying to try to be a half step between him and Loomis? Is he trying to talk a little bit like Loomis? I don't. I don't know. I feel like he's a young actor giving it his all and just trying right. everything that he can. Yeah, right. There's a, there's some clever business with Paul Rudd. I mean, mm-hmm. like uh, the the cross around his neck, for example. He keeps playing with it, kissing it, moving it around. Um, it was an onk, is, wasn't it? Or an onk, yeah, whatever yeah. it is. But yeah, that's a, that's very that's very druid. Uh, yeah. <laughs> an onk. Yeah, but it's a, it's just a, a, a it's just good business, good stage business for uh, yeah. as you said, a young actor who's clearly trying to stand out. Um, and um, but yeah, I mean, when the it's I don't think it's in the producer's cut. It was one of the things that I think if I, it bugged me when he first sees Michael. At the towards the end of the movie, and he has that weird twitchy, uh, half laugh, half cry, half yeah. scream thing that he does. It's like my favorite thing ever. Yeah, um, it's, it's a very it's 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 all in his face, and it's a very oh shit, you know. He's also thing. kind of like, but it's also kind of like a, a fan bone. Like he's yeah. also like excited to see it. Like right. he's like, holy shit, there he is again. Uh, I you know, Mister Myers, can I ask you a few questions? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> But it's a great it's a great moment of like all these different things going on and it, it makes me laugh every time because it's yeah, such it's a great. it's such a it's it's such a great little moment. And, um and he's got one of the more tricky scenes of exposition where he's just, you know, okay, yes. here's the plot. And yeah. he still manages to make it, you know, not stop the film entirely. Uh it comes be close. interesting as it comes close, but he, he yeah. just barely ekes it on the side of, of watchability. Um yeah. in a way that in the series previous, you know, only really Donald Pleasance has been able to pull off. Yeah. Well it's I, I think the only thing that keeps it from completely going off the rails is that he smells her hair. <laughs> yeah, he's like um it's it's, it's, it's what it's what makes the I think it's what makes the the whole exhibition scene work is that he's kind of turned off. And um it's it again it's very creepy. Uh, but he's—he's well, like, he's been well, watching he, her undress for a month now, at least. Well, he's been watching. He's been watching the house. Oh um, right, I'm sorry. Right, the house. Uh, but when he does get Winky caught, face. he doesn't really. He doesn't. When he she catches him at the beginning of the film, he does not. Uh, he he keeps watching for a minute. You right. know, he, he clearly doesn't doesn't concern him. Um, but yeah, I mean, but like I said, the, the entire scene is like him. Like, here's the plot. I'm doing my creepy Paul Rudd voice. And and then it cuts back to him and he's sniffing her hair, and uh, and I'm like, holy shit! Like that's awesome. Um, uh, it, it's such a great little again. It's it's Paul Rudd doing some really great Paul Rudd work. Um, I, I do like that they gave um, Doctor Loomis's uh, opening narration to Paul Rudd in the theatrical yeah. cut. That's 
I, I like them both, but I think it was cooler to have, you know, him do it because he's supposed to be the, I really feel like they were supposed to be the Loomis character going forward, you know, yeah. from here. Yeah. But yeah, uh, but, uh, and, and Steve, I apologize. We're talking way too much on this one. Um, oh, okay. yeah. But, um, but yeah, we, <laughs> I love, uh, again, I forget how the producer's cut goes, but I know it's probably, but it's, it's healthier than this, but. So they go back to the house. They've had the whole stuff at the uh, Myers house. They go back. The druids show up, uh, grab the kid. They grab and they chase Kara upstairs, and she jumps out of a fucking window, um, three stories or whatever. Crash lands, and then there's this unbelievably awkward transition. They cut the black at the theatrical. They cut back, and Paul Rudd and Doctor Loomis are standing there with their thumbs up their asses. <laughs> literally saying why literally saying why are we standing here with our thumbs up our asses and dr Loomis is like it's because we were drugged and left here <laughs> and instead of paul Rudd going why didn't they just and then paul Rudd going why didn't they kill us and they, it's because of that game and i'm like that makes no sense no. uh screenwriter uh can we can we get another cut on that um like well because <laughs> wow. all they had to do was cut away to um them in a jail cell yeah all you had to do yeah. is they were taking they were taking uh, and they were put in a jail cell because obviously we do have the scene where uh, the guy wants Loomis to join him, which I, I don't. Why would you think Loomis would they join want, you? They want why Loomis want to replace him. him. He's he's the only person they know who's more frail and old than Doctor Wynn. So let's have yeah. him take over care of yeah. care and feeding of Michael. That, that's gonna yeah. work. Yeah, what do you want him for? Yeah, I mean he's yeah. clearly about to die, you know. Right. But like I've chosen you, Sam. What? Uh, he's kind of old. Can um, I ask a quick question? Yeah. No. Uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> Go ahead. So, did you guys get that Dr. Wynn was supposed to be the character from the very first Halloween who is uh, at the Institute when Loomis shows up and he's like, he, he couldn't have gotten away or, you know, he yes. couldn't have driven away. He's been locked up or whatever the line is from the first one. But mm-hmm. I never realized until today that that's supposed to be that character. Did you guys know that? Know that? No. Yeah, no. I did. Um, but I watched, this was, <coughs> Halloween was really up there with friday 13th is you know always boxing it out with my favorite <laughs> slasher franchise so i watched you know halloween like especially middle school and high school like all the damn time yeah okay and i read and i read fangoria all the time and i between one of the one of those two things i knew going in that it was that was the same dr win you know because no. you're, you're being introduced to this character in part six and you're supposed to have this feeling that he and loomis have this relationship going way back and there's part of me it's like oh it's smart that they at least tried to tie it back to the original film with a character that is forgettable you know right. in the larger sense of the movie he's got two lines and then he's done right. in the movie uh yeah. but again it was it was an odd choice to be like i want you to be my replacement sam uh right. you're older than me right. you don't get around very well no <laughs> you've had a stroke a couple of years ago yeah uh, and you almost died <laughs> You sure, almost died like not? four times. Yeah. yeah, you're you're scarred up. You walk with a cane. But here's um, what I here, here's what I yeah. think, and this is my head canon coming into it over you know anything that's in the text. Um, you know, maybe the rune you know is like the one ring where it extends life as well as you know giving you power because Michael can't be killed. Michael doesn't seem to age um, or or be hurt. Uh, so maybe if you have the rune, you know, it's like. Uh, it's like having, you know, some sort of druidic health insurance. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's again, a, it's, it's as good of an explanation as anything we get in the movie. So, yeah, you probably yeah. would have bought it better if I had tried to do the Tommy Doyle voice when I did it. But, uh, yeah. 
but yeah, but also at the same time, it's it, again, it's like, well, even if it, even if that were true, why are you offering it to the one guy who's devoted his entire life to killing Michael? Right. Um, I want you to take my, to join us and, and take my place. Uh, it, it, taking care of the guy you've been trying to murder. For, I feel. Like, and I also feel like there was a draft that doesn't come across very clear in either cut of the film. What, what the hell the the cult is even doing? Yeah. Um, because on one hand you have Michael trying to kill um, Jamie and and uh, what are they? Stephen, I think they call the the baby. Uh, yeah, so, they yeah whatever, whatever. Yeah. Uh, the baby. And, yeah. yeah. So she's trying to kill them, and um, but on the other hand you have. Uh, you know, them trying to get Danny to kill his mother or his family. I think somewhere in a, in a draft along the way, they kind of dropped what that was supposed to mean because I think they were trying to pass on the curse from Michael to Danny. And yeah. Michael had to Michael had to finish his task before they could, you know, sign the new boogeyman. It's, it's not implicit in either cut because, right. uh, again, uh, I read Taking Shape literally right before they <laughs> started talking, and they do talk about the fact that Michael is supposed to... Uh, kill the baby, which ends his bloodline apparently. Um, which, but he could have like, just killed JB and ended the bloodline, Why right? And that's, bring a baby into this, it doesn't make sense. That's what I don't get. Um, right. and then Danny would kill his mother, Kara, because she's tied up, um, uh, in the ceremonial gown that we never get an explanation for. Um, right. and he's supposed to kill her to start the curse, right? Um, and I think that they tried to simplify it down in the theatrical where they're like, well. Instead of it being that, and I left this part out, you know, Michael is the father of the baby right. in the producer's cut. They're like, let's just eliminate that. And we'll say that this is an engineered baby that's going to be the new Michael. Right. Um, but and they that makes lose Danny the, redundant. Yeah, it yes. makes Danny redundant. Absolutely. So, yeah, yeah that, that, that seemed to be my read as well. That was the idea that they were trying to create the next Michael. And in the producer's, yeah. sorry, go ahead. In the producer's cut, you know, they also have that scene where you know dr Wynn comes to the hospital where jamie's at and he kills her i'm like well you got two ways to have this bloodline and you have one of them in custody why are we why are we taking one off the board yourself mm-hmm. that is what if the baby dies what if you know tommy left it on the bed too long and it rolled over <laughs> mm-hmm. so, uh, then you have nothing you know yeah 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 well also that i mean yeah you're letting that baby uh hang out with the creepy guy i mean like I love that that idea. He takes the baby and he's like going to try and like be a mom or something. Right. And it's like you know, I'm like, dude, you can't even take care of yourself. Like, what? <laughs> you know, you would think he would just like go hand the care. We would have just crossed the street and handed the baby to Karen and say, "Can you help me deal with this fucking baby, please?" Because I don't right. know how to do it. Um, You're a single uh, mom. You know how to do this here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, what Tommy Doyle feeding it hot dogs? I mean, like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, he's up there's a whole he's... there's a whole other movie in there that was just a remake of uh, Mr. Bob that they cut out from. The, yeah, yeah, the it's, it's uh, three men and a baby, except for a <laughs> creepy stalker guy, right. um, and his and his deaf uh, deaf uh, landlady, and uh, you know, and it's again, it's just like he's like, what was he thinking he was gonna do? Uh, right. Does he have baby formula? No, nope. uh, it's 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 actually a PBR. It's hot dogs. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, it's uh, you know to use you know what I was doing when I was single was you know it's 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 PBR hot dogs. You know right. that's dinner. It's tonight. not. He doesn't even have hot dog buns. He just eats eats the hot dogs. It's like exactly. Yeah, he doesn't even cook. 
Yeah, nope. they're just out of the <laughs> um, Yeah, they, uh, maybe maybe wrapped in bologna or something. <laughs> He's but I mean, mustard. like, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, he. But yeah, I don't know what 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 the hell Tommy Doyle was thinking he was going to do with his baby, but apparently he was going to do something with it. Um, and he, but yeah, he jumps the hero pretty quickly, and it doesn't really make any sense because he's kind of not exactly. I mean, I, I think that part of me always kind of you know watching this movie now thinks that I'm like, was he supposed to be a villain at some point? Like, I feel like maybe he was. I don't know. It's it's a very odd. It's a very odd character. Very odd. Movie. And, um, but I love, uh, but I just, I love how odd it is. And that's, that's what I think what I really like about it is that like, this movie is so absurd. Right. Um, right down to the guitar licks and, uh, you know, and weird stuff going on. <laughs> Babies, and, and there's aborted fetuses in, in jars at the end of the movie and they kill him with, uh, with unspecific syringes filled with unspecific chemicals. And then Paul Rudd beats him to death with a pipe. Uh, uh, and I'm like, that's kind of rad. I mean, yeah. uh, it, it's stupid as hell, but I love watching Paul Rudd, uh, you know, giggle and smack him in the face with a pipe. <laughs> well, that was over that was the part of the again. movie. That was the part of the movie where even the first time I watched it, I was I walked out of the theater a little upset because like the ending is just so poorly done. Yeah. It, it just comes out of nowhere. It doesn't mean nothing. You know, like you said, he just beats him with the pipe and injects him with, you know, acid that's laying, laying around while he's in while he's in the, you know, secret DNA base from, you know, the X-Files episode, the Erlenmeyer flask for, for some goddamn reason. <laughs> still better like, than Buster still better than Buster Rhymes beating him up well, with generic kung fu. This is true, but you know, yeah. at this point, we we didn't know where the bottom of the barrel was going to wind up. <laughs> <laughs> except, except if Paul Rudd had said "trick or treat, trick or treat, motherfucker," uh, it probably would have been the best ending of the entire Halloween series. <laughs> um, uh, just imagine next time you watch it, you at home watch Halloween Six and imagine Paul Rudd saying that I, he's I, a killer I, shark I, in baggy ass overalls. Yeah, it's it's a better movie all of a sudden. Um, but yeah. <laughs> But yes, it's it's still a better ending than Buster Rhymes uh, uh, doing Bruce Lee noises and uh, and get it using a downed wire um, yeah. to the which groin. Is what it was right? It was a, yeah, to, yeah, to the groin. to the dick. Yep, uh, shocking yeah. the dick. What the hell? Halloween Resurrection. What the hell? Um, um, still, still to me is the absolute bottom of the Halloween Resurrection. Um. But yeah, okay. So, uh, any any final thoughts, Steve? Uh, I know Sam has a little game he wants to play here at the end. Steve, did, uh, we've talked over, we've talked too much in this episode. I apologize. We're supposed to be, when we have guests on. We're supposed to shut up, but we both get excited. So people are, are listening for you guys. So don't don't apologize. Um, yeah. The uh, it's your guys' show. Uh, the thing that I wanted to mention, I just wanted to um, thank Sam because I will now forever think of the trucker who's drinking at the beginning and it's in the rain <laughs> as Zap Rosedower. Rosedower? Uh, so... <laughs> what are you doing to my truck? <laughs> I wonder if there's beer on the sun. <laughs> I mean, he's outside in a, in, in a storm, drinking and taking a piss. Yeah. I think That's he's supposed to be a, to I, I think he's supposed to be a worker, but yeah, he's, he's there and he's there. Yeah, at the beginning, we're talking about the very, very beginning with Jamie's trying to escape from the call and there's a guy Outside in a, in a rain slicker with a can of beer and a, a mullet, full on, full on mullet. Yeah. Uh, just a mustache, no beard. Nope. Um, and he just kept yelling, What are you doing with my truck? Even though there's a girl who's clearly <laughs> screaming in terror 
in the in the truck and he just is like he's finishing his beer and uh, <laughs> right. walking over. And yeah, it's and, and but, Sam, I mean so if, this is this is Smith's Grove's sanitarium. This isn't the first breakout he's 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 seen. You know, he's, <laughs> point, it's just, it's a Tuesday to him. You know? But Sam had mentioned uh, Ed compared him to the uh, to the famous Rouse Dower from the Mystery Science Theater episode, The Final Sacrifice. Uh, very very Canadian. Uh, cheaply made film of starring uh, of a character named Zap Rousdower, who looks a lot like this guy wearing denim on denim, the Canadian tuxedo. And it also uh, features a, a cult with non-specific goals, you know. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> they're gonna live forever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same call, but I smell a double feature now. <laughs> yeah, Zap Rousdower versus Halloween. You could do worse. Yep. Yeah. Uh. So how Rousdower? Steve, uh, what would you if you could change this film for the better? What would how would you how would you let's say fix this film? Because I feel like even if you like this film, you have to know it's kind of broken. Oh yeah. Yeah. Wow, I don't know as far as like fixing it. There is part of me that wonders like what would have happened if they just would have said to to the writer um, Daniel Farrens, who is clearly a huge fan, he'd written a bible. Right. Uh, from his first pitch because he pitched it twice. Uh, he pitched it in like 1990. Yeah, he then... pitched it for like Halloween four or five originally, and it brought like a whole series Bible with him and everything. So yeah, yeah. And then he got called back for for six or to to do his pitch after they'd written very many of drafts that didn't work. Um, he's clearly a fan. Um, he knows the mythology. I kind of wish they would have just been like, you know what, do what you want to do. Don't uh, don't worry about, you know, either, um, you know, solving problems that we, we created in the last one or, um, you know, don't worry about tying it in a bloodline. Just write what you think would be a fun, great Halloween movie and we'll we'll work from there. And if there's an issue trying to fix it or making it align with the last one, we'll we'll figure it out from there. But I I, I think that like going into this film and, and saying to that person, uh you know, okay, you've got to tie everything together and make this work and make it like the original again. It's just too heavy of a baggage to try and write a movie in. Um, so I, I just kind of want to know, like, what would have a Halloween 6 been if they just, like, you don't have to worry too much about it. We'll figure out a way um, with some narration at the beginning or something to, and we'll just go from there. And I, I wish right. that maybe it would have been a little bit more of a, a vision um, of the writer as opposed to by committee uh, and i don't think that really answers fixing it but no, i think it, it at does. least it, it gives you know it would give us a, a chance to see something more original than somebody trying to tie up a bunch of loose ends makes sense i i, I could go with that like like yeah. i said i feel like one of the biggest drawbacks to this film other than being you know painted into a corner is that it doesn't have a clear vision. It it keep it kept getting muddled and redone and rejiggered even on set and you know then afterwards and it it yeah. kind of loses the thread somewhere in there. Yeah, I agree. All right, so you guys want to you guys want to play a game? Sure. We'll yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, the winner gets a very special gift, which is you know very special. I bet. Uh, <laughs> so so the game is I'm going to read you some ideas of and. Uh, you have to guess if this is an actual thing from Halloween. It'll be either a novel, novelization, comic book, an unused draft of the script, or something that I just made up because I'm an idiot. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, Steve, you're our guest, uh, so I'll give you the first question. Okay. Um, 
Busta Rhymes is at the premiere for a release of a Michael Myers documentary featuring um, about his time from the last film. Uh, a lot of the survivors of the past film are in the audience. Meanwhile, the shape escapes from a government laboratory and starts killing people. Real or bullshit? I, oh, boy. I don't know that after that movie comes out that you really want to explore Buster Rhymes' character after uh, Resurrection comes out, but uh, I'm going to say real. That is correct. It is a is an actual Halloween, what is that, eight and nine idea? <laughs> eight or yeah. nine, whatever, yeah. Wow. All right, uh, okay. so we got one. Uh, Nathaniel? Yeah. Uh, I've got your question. Uh, a group of teen ghost hunters go to film a found footage documentary at Smith's Grub Sanitarium. The shape shows up and starts killing, and they run into a not Dr. Loomis who lives in the basement. Uh, God, it's difficult because who knows so many terrible ideas. I've read Slash of the Titans. I know terrible ideas were out there. I'm going to say that's bullshit. You made that up. Nope, that is true. That is from the young adult <laughs> young adult novel called The Madhouse. That was uh, okay. when they tried to do Halloween as a series of novels like uh, Fear Street or, or Goosebumps. Okay. Right, yeah, that, that character yeah. had that kind of likes. Yeah. Yeah. We're uh we're yeah. we're back to you, Steve. We're one to zero. Uh, Dr. Loomis teams up with an FBI profiler to find Michael after Halloween is over and he escapes. That sounds very X-File-ish, which makes me think it's real. Um, but I'm going to say that that's false. Ooh, good job. It is fake. I, my stupid brave made that up. <laughs> it's it's no less plausible than things that we've got. Right. So. That was the yeah. hardest part. The hardest part of making up this game was, A, calling down the all the Halloween stuff out there to, a, to um, 10 questions, and then coming up with plausible yet stupid ideas of my own. All right, so we are back to you, Nathaniel. Uh, okay, got... it can't be any stupider than a Fear Street uh, <laughs> starring Michael because the character right. has that kind of legs. I feel yeah, like. yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, there's that many stories right. in this character. Sure. All right, but, Tommy Doyle yeah. uses a virtual reality program that he creates to go back into druidic times to see the origin of the cult. Uh, he finds a dimensional doorway uh, between the worlds uh, is beneath uh, Judith's grave. All right, that's true. That is absolutely true. That is yeah. from one of the Halloween. That's from one of the, the first Halloween six drafts. Oh my god! Okay. Yes, uh, right. Sam Hay, Sam Hay literally comes out of the uh, the dimensional doorway and possesses Michael in that. Wasn't that something that like Dimension was pushing for? They're like, there's yes. got to be an alternate reality version. Of, yeah, they need, they they demanded VR. That's why um, Tommy Doyle has that little computer program in there that you know was showing back at me in my head. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the same studio that that uh, that did um, uh, Bloodlines, Hellraiser Bloodlines. So that's not shocking. All right, <laughs> all right. So Nathaniel, it's back to you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, no, it's, it's Steve's turn. Hmm? Steve's turn. I just got oh yeah, right, right, right. Yes. I'm sorry. Uh, Michael crashes a slasher support group to kill Jamie Lloyd, winds up killing Kirsty Cotton instead, and this pisses off Pinhead. Wow. Uh, I know both franchises are from, from reading Taking Shape. I know both franchises are there. And I know that the director of Six uh, had actually worked on the reshoots of Bloodline. So 
I'm gonna I'm gonna say that that's not too far out, but I, I I'm gonna say that that's fake. Uh, it it sounds plausible, but I'm is that from a, is that from one of the comic books? Sam? It is uh, true, and it's from the first uh, draft of uh, Halloween, a Michael Myers versus Pinhead uh, team up that they wanted to do. Was that post Freddy versus Jason? This was pre. Okay. Uh, this would be around the time when they were developing uh, Halloween six or between six and seven. I can't remember really? which. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I mean, you know, Freddy versus Jason was in, as you know, it, it, in, but it was in development for like fifteen years. Yeah. So fifteen years. Yeah. It's not like they came up with the idea. Okay, Nathaniel, it comes back yeah. to you. Okay. A ghostly version of the shape uh, returns, culminating in him killing an entire drive-in theater audience. Bullets oh, do not stop him, but make him grow larger until he becomes 12 feet tall. You made that one up. Nope. This was uh, John Carpenter's <laughs> pitch. That was John Carpenter's pitch for Halloween 4. Or one of the first drafts of that. So not why everything, 12 not, feet? Not like, uh, because he's a ghost and uh, he just kept on growing in power. Um the 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 strong subtext of that film was going to be the damage that Halloween had done to the town of Haddonfield. Um, the twelve foot tall ghost. Well, yeah, that at the end you have to have something really stupid, right? So, <laughs> twelve foot tall ghost fits the bill. All right, uh, Steve, it's back to you. Lori is a fashion photographer living in Chicago. Michael kills her lover, who is a rock star, and spends the rest of the film walking around in leather jacket and pants. Oh wow! Um, I feel like Akkad was so um, protective, at least, of Michael after Part Three, in the sense that, like, we got to give the audience what they know and love. That that would be false. But again, I'm not counting books and comics, so I'm fighting with myself. That sounds like a comic book. I'm gonna say a comic book. I'm gonna say it's real. It is real, but it is a draft of Halloween Four. Really? Yes. Wow. So I'll give it to you because the real answer, real question is whether it's true or false, not where it's from. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, Nathaniel, back to you. Yeah. This is a this is a, a short one. Michael Myers in space. That's true. That is true. That is yeah. uh, John Carpenter. I'm not sure if he was fucking with people or not, but he he said that that was his idea for a, for a Halloween sequel. Yeah. But John Carpenter, you can never tell if he's fucking with you high or, or serious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or a combination. All right, Steve, uh, back to you. Lori has become an actress. Uh, when cast in a film to play, its, play herself in a movie based on the 1978 events, <coughs> Michael shows up and starts killing the crew and cast. That feels a little Scream 3 to me. I'm going to say yes, that's real. Nope, that was my stupid idea of ripping off Scream 3. <laughs> That's exactly where I came from. With it. I'm like, this is Scream 3. All right. So, Nathaniel, if you get this one, you can tie it up and go to the bonus round. Uh, okay. if, you, if you miss this one, you lose and you do not get the excellent prize. All right. You ready? Yeah. All right. No pressure. No pressure. Sure. <laughs> no, there's literally no pressure. I don't care. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> pretend, pretend like this means something god damn it all right all right i'm i'm, all right. I'm biting my nails all right tommy doyle desperate after the events of halloween six 
uses runic necromancy to summon a dead killer to fight fight Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees. Tommy Jarvis shows up to stop Jason. Tommy and Tommy wind up teaming up to fight Mike and Jason. That's real. I'm sorry, that is fake. That is my own fan script from high school. <laughs> oh my okay. God, do you still have that? Thankfully, no. <laughs> oh, I would love to read it. <laughs> uh, it was it was it was awful. Uh, but we we were actually trying to make a fan film uh, of of Michael versus Jason at the time, and uh, luckily we didn't have the money to do so because it would be highly embarrassing. <laughs> well, I mean, you, you say that, but like that was sort of the plot of like Freddy versus Jason versus Ash, like the comic book series, right? Just, like yeah. pulling in all the characters yeah. But I, from- I just wanted to say that I wrote this in 1996, so yeah. they owed me money. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. all right so steve you are the winner you won three to two and uh as such uh you get the uh the rune of thorn and now it's your job to keep control of michael myers until the day you are dead oh my god congratulations <laughs> wow i feel both honored and sad at the same time <laughs> no no <laughs> not again <laughs> yeah I can't oh, do a good funny. Loomis, so I'm no, not going to try. No, nobody but he could, as we showed in the in later sequels where they tried to do voiceovers of Loomis. Yeah. Uh, B&A H2O, yeah, they do, uh, they, somebody do it as Donald Pleasance. Yeah. All right. So you want to take us out? I think we're. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Steve, you want to you pitch anything before we're done? You want to uh, tell us where, where we can find your stuff? Yeah, uh, you can find me on Invasion of the Podcast with my co-host Paul. Um, we're doing, uh, right now, uh, every year we do a, a different uh, special episode for uh, every month of the year. Uh, right now we're doing a uh, year of the sequel. Um, so every month we're revisiting at least one sequel from any franchise. Uh, and this week we're going to be taking a look at, uh, this coming week I should say, we're going to be looking at uh, American Ninja 2, uh, the canon classic, if you will. Um, so you can find us on invasion of the podcast.com. Uh, you can find us on, and Paul's always great at naming all these things off, but you know, your iTunes or Apple podcasts, uh, Stitcher, uh, Google play, all those types of places. And if you want to check out my comic, head to the Saturday at slasher.com. Uh, there's a, uh, link to our Etsy store. If you wanted to buy a copy as well, or you can find me on Instagram or Facebook under the Saturday night slasher. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you. All right. So, um, uh, thank you as always. Uh, thank you for being on again, Steve. Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, you are, uh, you, you and Paul and Terry, who's uh, on Paul's other podcast, are very, very good friends of ours uh, here on this podcast. So, we're always glad to have you. Um, it was a good conversation. So, thanks a lot for coming by. Um, and uh, Sam, uh, thank you as well. My co host, you want to no say, say goodbye? All right. Uh, stay safe. Have a, happy half a weed uh now that it's over yeah uh, we can all go back into smith's grove sanitarium until uh next half a weed <laughs> so everyone yeah. stay safe uh have fun out there get your uh get your vaccines don't be stupid don't be yeah. like uh the right wig and think that it's going to give you microchips and whatever else and with that uh good night and uh as nathaniel says namaste Thank you, Dan. 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 Thank you, D